Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Just because a caper works in the movies does not necessarily mean you can pull it off in real life. But that didn't stop the Dotremont brothers from trying. They had grown up watching all of these, you know, these films, these westerns, uh, the sort of the Robin Hood, robbing the rich, you know, to give to the poor. The heroes are always the train robbers riding on horseback and hopping on and getting the, the money. That's Kate Winkler Dawson, a professor of journalism at the University of Texas, Austin, talking about these three brothers, Roy, Ray and Hugh Dotremont. And so they were enthusiastic and ready to rob a train. And they had picked the perfect train that was traveling from uh, the top of Oregon down into California through Siskiyou County. Butch Cassidy had made money by robbing trains at the end of the 1800s. And in 1903, movie theaters featured a thrilling Western called The Great Train Robbery. It seemed like if you were looking for a get-rich-quick scheme, this was definitely it. And so the three brothers, who had mostly been down on their luck, spent years planning this particular robbery. Now, it may have been the perfect train for the job. They suspected that it was carrying hundreds of thousands of dollars in bills, checks, and precious metals. But they, as it happened, were far from the perfect robbers. They, unfortunately for them, uh, had no clue how to use dynamite correctly and blew apart the majority of the train once they stopped it. And got away with no money and ended up killing, shooting four people in the process. So it's funny because this is called America's Last Great Train Robbery, when there actually was no robbery because they destroyed any money they could have possibly gotten away with. It's the getting away with it part of things that may be the most unexpected twist in this story. The brothers, even though they had botched the robbery, almost escaped the clutches of the law. They were found out because of just one man, a man whose mind was stuffed with seemingly useless facts, a man who never liked to part with anything, a scrap of paper, a piece of metal, a gun that might potentially help him solve a crime. A man so good at solving the unsolvable, he was dubbed America's Sherlock Holmes. You're Sherlock Holmes? Yes. Alex Doogan is my name. I must talk to you. I'm in desperate need of your advice. Well, come in, my lad. Come in. Oh, uh, permit me to introduce my friend and colleague, Dr. Watson. But more about Holmes and Watson later. Kate Winkler Dawson is the author of American Sherlock, Murder, Forensics, and the Birth of American CSI. And she says... The reason that Roy, Ray, and Hugh Dotremont didn't get away with murder was because of a man who changed crime-solving in America. He changed American policing and the work of federal investigators. He changed forensics and even our notion of what it means to solve a crime. If it weren't for my obsessions, you would know that she has sarcoidosis. Eighteen months ago, she sold her Stairmaster. It was only two months old. Now either she needed the cash or climbing stairs was getting more difficult. I've narrowed down what our suspect's using to burn the tags off. A blowtorch? Yeah, burns a small, precise, just like what you get with compact torches used in dental labs. There's a knife on the breadboard with butter on the right side of the blade. Because he used it with his left, it's highly unlikely that a left-handed man would shoot himself in the right side of his head. Conclusion, someone broke in here and murdered him. The idea that the main way to crack a case is with logic, with science, with tests, like we've seen on CSI, on House, on Murder, She Wrote, well, that idea was born in the U.S. with a man named Oscar Heinrich, a pharmacist turned professional sleuth who, though his name has mostly been lost to history, 
was in some ways a real-life Sherlock Holmes, a man who rose to prominence a little bit over 100 years ago in the 19-teens. This is really a time period where the criminals have uh, the upper hand. They're becoming more intelligent. Toxicology has is really developing, and so you know it's a it's a this decade is sort of a big catch up period, where investigators and forensic scientists are just learning how to work together. Heinrich loved solving puzzles, and he understood there was an opening for a brilliant obsessive character to bring science into the world of crime fighting. And kind of like Jessica Fletcher or Miss Marple, he wasn't exactly the sort of person you'd expect to be one of the world's greatest sleuths. Heinrich grew up in Tacoma, Washington, and as a teenager saw, according to Kate Winkler Dawson, his first dead body at the age of 16, the body of his father, who had killed himself after despairing over his financial failures. Heinrich was now the only man in the family, and he felt he had to support his mother and his sisters. So he dropped out of high school and went to work. And he becomes essentially a pharmacy tech at a pharmacy in Tacoma. And then he decides that a great career for him would be as a pharmacist. So he studies. He doesn't take any classes because they can't afford them. But he studies and he passes the state exams when he's 18. So this is really, even though he didn't know it at the time, this is the beginning of his career in forensics. But working in a pharmacy isn't just a series of lessons in how to mix chemicals and what medications have what effects on a body. It was also, for the young man who was watching people out of the corner of his eye, a lesson in what really drives us. Alcohol, for example, which was used in some medicines and which alcoholics tried desperately to convince pharmacists to give them more of. He really believed that in a pharmacy, you can learn the best and the worst about people. You know, people coming in, like you said, and lying about alcohol and medicine or just medicine in general, just trying to get more medicine. He said he saw, you know, fights between spouses and kids stealing and then, you know, the good also. He worked, he felt like he worked with some really good pharmacists who who were honorable and wouldn't give away this medicine. And then, of course, he just, you know, he loved learning about chemicals and compounds and putting things together. And kind of like Sherlock Holmes or Miss Marple, he never forgot the lessons he learned. He really paid attention. And his mind was so incredible, especially as he grew older. He could just recall things that he learned 40 or 50 years earlier, and he would be able to kind of like place them in a a crime scene, like in some of the cases that are in the book, where, you know, he's able to deduce what people do for a living just based on what seems to be really innocuous, you know, evidence and details. And that's all based on his memory and experiences that he had in the past. Which brings us back to the train robbery, which was supposed to make three brothers rich, and ended up going horribly wrong. Because there was no robbery, but there was murder. Though the question of who was responsible for the killing left investigators stumped. And they didn't have much to go on. What they had was pretty much just a pair of overalls. And they look through it, and federal agents come down, and they look through it, and the only thing they can find is a smear of mechanics grease on one of the pockets. And so they promptly arrest the first 'er ne'er-do-well 
you know, mechanic they can find in town who can sort of wear these overalls. And then they turn over the overalls to Heinrich because they're nervous. They need more credit, you know, more proof. And he looks through the overalls and finds 20 to 30 clues total. I mean, it's pretty incredible. I couldn't even put down everything that he found. It would just have been too long of a list of all the details that he pulled. But what he walked away with were a couple of important things. One was he found in one of the pockets a tiny, tiny ball of paper that he was able to unravel by steaming and using a chemical, and he pulled some numbers off of it, and it was a U.S. Postal Service receipt. And he was able, with this receipt, to trace it to the sender, who was a brother of these three brothers who robbed this train. And the pieces Heinrich could assemble involved almost surreal amounts of obscure knowledge. In another case, he knew that the handwriting in a letter was the writing of a baker, somebody who decorated cakes. The person made his letters the way that a baker would if he was decorating the top of a cake. How he knew this, I have no idea. But the bits of trivia he put together were very much like the physical stuff he collected. They accumulated and accumulated. You know, when I when I went into his archive, there were loaded guns from evidence that he had used that UC Berkeley had to come and take the firing pins out of these guns. There were jawbones. He, he just filed the, the loaded he gun just, away because yeah. you never know when you're no, going to need yeah, one. No, okay. I mean, at least they weren't cocked. Right. I mean, <laughs> they were there, though. He had like a locket. I was talking to the archivist. And he, I picked up this locket and I said, what is this? And she said, that's from the Moormeister case, which was not covered in the book. And it was a woman who had been run down by her own limousine and killed six oh times. Gosh. So clearly oh. this was not, <laughs> this is somebody who not was highly accident, motivated. Probably. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so he kept all of this stuff. And so I think he was a like a literal productive hoarder, but I think he did the same thing in his mind. Like, mm. you know, if you talk about Sherlock Holmes in the Mind yes. Palace, I think he really did that. And he was able to recall all of these details. And so I was talking to a friend of mine and she said, do you think that he became sort of, you know, this detailed hoarder person of, of details in his mind and also just like case files because of this job because he was a forensic scientist and he knew that he had to recall all of this information in order to, to solve a crime. And I said, no, I think it's the opposite. I think he became a forensic scientist in order to kind of control these tendencies. Hmm. Um, what is the role of Sherlock Holmes here? Like Sherlock, the stories of Sherlock Holmes had only come out in the decades before, just the very few decades before Heinrich became a really big deal, a really, really important um, person in terms of forensics. Right. Um, was he inspired by Sherlock Holmes? Uh, you know, as you say, Sherlock Holmes was this person who had all these little details in his mind and could fit them together in these really brilliant puzzle piece kind of ways. What, what role did he play? Well, I think as an influencer for, for Heinrich, the easy answer is I'm not sure. Okay. So I have, you know, I know how many books he had. He had something like poor UC Berkeley has now like 2,000 of his books on the weirdest things ever that he studied. And he had personal books in there. And I never found any Sherlock Holmes books. But he obviously knew who he was. It was the trending fictional book, you know, these these sets of books at the time. And there were kind of two things that were really interesting that popped up with Sherlock Holmes. One was a reporter who said, so, you know, this is the lair of Sherlock Holmes as he's walking around Heinrich's lab. And Heinrich snapped at him and said, "I this is nothing to do with Sherlock Holmes. I'm not Sherlock Holmes. And he essentially said Holmes guesses and, and, and uses hunches. 
And he says, hunches play no part in my lab. Then in one of the other cases, the manslaughter trial of Fatty Arbuckle, who was a very famous silent film star, who went on trial for supposedly accidentally killing an, an actress during a party, the defense attorney accuses Heinrich and his assistant of introducing themselves at the crime scene as Sherlock and Watson. And so he sort of smirked at that. So I'm not, I think he secretly really enjoyed it, but publicly he scoffed because, you know, he was a proponent of science. He really felt like there was always going to be forensic evidence to support his findings, but he certainly did work off of hunches. There was a case that wasn't that I loved that wasn't in the book about a woman who was um, married and uh, her husband in World War One went deaf and came back and he wasn't able to go dancing with her anymore. So he took her to dances. Her name was Eva Rablin. And she would bring him coffee and tea or co- uh, coffee and um, cookies you know, during breaks, and she would go back in and dance. And she did this one night, and she came back out after giving him coffee and cookies, and he was dead. And it turned out he had died of strychnine poisoning, which is a horrible way to die. Hmm. And so the family thinks that she did it. They think that she is money-grubbing and just married him for his money. And she says, listen, basically, you have no proof that I put poison in his coffee. And she was right. They just could not figure out how it happened. So they brought in Heinrich, and he looked at the witnesses' statements about the party. And he knew that the coffee stand was on one side of the dance floor and the exit was on the other. And the only way she could get from the coffee stand where she got the coffee to the exit to give it to her husband was across this dance floor, but it was very crowded. And so he went back and re-interviewed all of the witnesses because he suspected that she would not be able to make it across that dance floor without bumping into someone and spilling coffee. So he found a woman who had coffee on her dress. She hadn't had it laundered. He tested it, and it came back positive for strychnine. And Eva Rayburn confessed. That is all. I mean, yes, he used, used, you know, he he tested for poison and, you know, all that. And there was handwriting analysis on a receipt. But but that was a hunch. And so when he said, every time I read that quote of his, like, no, I don't work off hunches. Yes, he does. (laughs) Thank goodness. Because she confessed. So. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the 1920s, because the 1920s, um, which is when Heinrich was really, you know, I think, it, would you say, like, he was kind of in full force by that time as, in terms of solving crimes? Yes, absolutely. Okay. That was also a time when there was a real uptick in crime. Like, he came along and started solving crimes at a time when crime was on the rise. What was going on and why was America being hit by a bit of a crime wave in the 20s? Right. So Heinrich started in 1910 and sort of started building momentum with handwriting analysis and some toxicology, and he was learning ballistics. But when America went through Prohibition, which started in 1920, was really when it was in full swing. You know, Prohibition was meant to bring the country back to Victorian-era values by forbidding alcohol. And all it did was create more crime Mm -hmm. and spawned the Al Capones of the world, you know, criminal enterprise, because now you had something, of course, that people wanted and were willing to pay and kill for. And so it just created um, um, the crime rate went up almost 80 percent from the 1910s, which is incredible. 
So this is a great time to be a criminal Mm -hmm. and a great time to be a forensic scientist. Mm. And, you know, again, at the same time, they're so desperate. These, you know, district attorneys and defense attorneys and police investigators, they really want help because, you know, they're having a hard time just even enforcing uh, the Volstead Act, which was prohibition, you know, enforcing, trying to shut down speakeasies, trying to stop the rum runners on the coast of California. There's a lot happening. And so you still have an awful lot of domestic violence happening. Drunk driving increased by like tenfold. It was incredible. So this is a time period that's ripe for forensics to really pick up steam, which is what happened. You know, you have people coming in who are ballistics experts coming out of the military, who um, went to college, who become more educated. And Heinrich worked with these folks. He had a lot of people who um, were circling him like sharks, who he called charlatans. So these experts who didn't have real education, they weren't professionally educated. And he was, and he had no respect for them. And he had very little respect for cops who had no college education either. He really felt like everybody needed to go to a university um, to learn correct policing, which is why he started teaching at UC Berkeley and he started the first criminology classes there. So that is a big part of his legacy. You know, people ask me, well, you know, what did he do? Like, what are the tools? And we can talk about that. But I think his legacy, especially coming from somebody like me who teaches at the University of Texas, I think his legacy was teaching. Uh, He taught all of these forensic tools to thousands of students over a 30 or 40 year career at UC Berkeley. How reluctant were police departments around the country to switch from the way they had been doing things, which was hunches, you know, trying to get confessions out of people in whatever way, to um, this much more science, sort of lab-based, you're looking at handwriting and, you know, how bullets worked. And, I mean, Heinrich looked at how blood spattered. I mean, there was a lot of science and detail in what he did that was different from how things had been done before. Right. They were reluctant at first, of course, because here's this egghead guy. He loved to wear tweed suits. And, you know, he was he's walking in with his little spectacles and his trigonometry dials to do blood stain pattern analysis. And uh, they looked at him certainly as someone who didn't belong there. The, the good news for Heinrich was because he was so good at what he did and he solved not just random cases, you know, he could come in and identify whether it was, a, you know, uh, someone was murdered or committed suicide. It wasn't that. It was um, that he was solving these really complicated, really confusing cases. Hmm. And so the good news for Heinrich was that he had so many positive results How are you going to argue with that? You can't argue with that. I mean, he solved crimes. People confessed. He was able to, you know, close cases. And so pretty soon cops just accepted the fact that this was going to be the way forward. More and more police officers um, attended his classes. Police departments from across the country sent their cops to his classes. So he gained respect with every single case that he solved. And in a 40-year career, more than 40 years, he closed more than 2,000 cases. That includes civil cases. He worked on an awful lot of civil cases, too, but many criminal cases. Do you think he also contributed to this notion that um, 
like science can infallibly lead you to who right. the killer is. Like yes. we, we've seen, <laughs> right, that a lot of DNA evidence when when you go back and take a look, mm, it's not as, as conclusive as we thought it was right. originally. There's a lot of people who've been convicted and then exonerated. I, I mean, I, I wonder if there's also there's too perfect a Sherlock Holmesian uh, piece to this of like for sure, you know, we o- we can always find our person without question. Right. I mean, he made some significant mistakes. The biggest one to me is the, is in the Fatty Arbuckle case. Many people of a certain age will remember from their parents about Fatty Arbuckle, and most people believed and maybe still believe that he was guilty of assaulting this woman and killing her, and that's just not what happened. Hmm. And Heinrich was the reason why he wasn't acquitted. He went on trial three to four times because of Heinrich's bad evidence. Heinrich thought that Arbuckle had done this, had murdered he this did. woman. He, okay. yep. he was hired by the prosecutor, and he used fingerprint evidence, which has always been the gold standard in our country, but it's just not. Mm-hmm. So anything that is what we call pattern matching, so bite marks, um, fingerprinting, shoe prints— Anything like that, um, fiber, like how a fiber is cut, mm-hmm. anything like that is problematic because it's up to in the interpretation of the expert. And if the expert isn't correctly trained or if the sample that they've received, particularly with fingerprints, is even at all smeared or wrong, then you're making a bad interpretation and it's just your observation. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people in prison who might deserve to be there, but it's bad evidence and mm. it sets up a bad precedent. And so this junk science is some some of the, the tools that he used, like bloodstain pattern analysis is junk science. Mm. This is all stuff that, you know, he propelled, he pushed forward, he advocated for, he believed in. What's telling about Heinrich to me, which do, is, doesn't bode well for him as far as I'm concerned, is that, you know, I read, I have about 4,000 of his letters. I got through about half of them, okay. maybe about 2,000. I just couldn't read. I couldn't read anymore. <laughs> I had to skip decades. It's a lot of letters from it one It was person. a lot of letters. Yeah. But what I noticed in these letters that I read is never once did he express any doubt. Like never, even when his cases were reversed, he would just say, well, they're idiots. I mean, they, they don't know. This huh. guy is going to reoffend. Mm-hmm. They don't know what they're talking about. So to me, that's troubling. Mm-hmm. That's troubling because I know that he had to have confidence. He sent six people to death row in one year. He, he had to have confidence in his evidence, but it was so young. It was so right at the beginning of the era of forensics in the United States. It hadn't been tested correctly. It hadn't been peer-reviewed. It hadn't been challenged in court. The only thing that was really challenged in court was the lie detector, which hmm. he believed in also. Hmm. So, you know, I mean, this is just the beginning. It's like, I right. guess when people started surgeries, a lot of people died, right. obviously. Right. So this is, this is now we're at a point where we understand understand what's junk science and what's not. And unfortunately, junk science is still admitted into courtrooms. Hmm. Kate Winkler Dawson is author of American Sherlock, Murder, Forensics, and the Birth of American CSI. She's also an associate professor of journalism at the University of Texas, Austin. Kate, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me.
And on our website, we're going to have more about another book of Kate's that focuses on the great suffocating London smog of 1952 and a serial killer who haunted the city at the same time. That's all at innovationhub.org. And you can also sign up there for our weekly newsletter, which previews each week's topics and offers a recommendation from our staff. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, and associate producer Sarah Leeson. We also had production help from Abby Bagini. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. <laughs>